0: You what the praxis is cooking
1: um, yeah i am um, i was in speaking colors but i was in the a new generation thinkers workshop with emma Whipday, um who had involved with that yeah no yeah. she seemed great um yeah we both didn't get it but it's fine <laughs> i'm not there <laughs> 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 Not Twitter. that you're bitter. Sorry. I...
0: I'm sorry. I didn't many, many years ago I also didn't get it. So it's a it's an elite crowd of people who don't get it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I didn't get it one year as well, but I didn't get even get through to the shortlisting process. So like I don't know. I think that's even
1: better, actually. <laughs> I wasn't even invited to be rejected. Wow. <laughs> we had to go through that hiring experience of two days of intense zoom when you're being monitored at all times. And I'm just gonna turn off my WhatsApp, which is pigging um because i'm so popular um so popular <laughs> so yeah, just was... me texting you to shut up <laughs> uh, pretty much yeah okay um, cool would you like to do the bio louise or um what would you like yeah no sure i will do yeah, the bio so go with the bio. uh this might be bullshit but we wrote it uh, <laughs>
2: yeah i have to say actually andy if it's if it's bullshit it's because there's nothing on your rohampton website and um that is very upsetting for us <laughs>
0: Nothing on my Roehampton website. Well,
2: it's just all—it's all bullet points. There's no sort of like yeah. easy prose passage that I can just adapt for our own Yeah, scenes. We
0: have to yeah. put it through this database. It's not very sexy.
1: Boring. It, it's a lot yeah. easier when people have these like elaborate things that they've crafted themselves. So we just nick it and then I mean, take, even it, on, it it on your own project reasoning. website, it was like <laughs> about, it
2: was like about the contributors. It was just like Andy Kesson, and then it was a link to the Roehampton website. <laughs>
0: oh uh, the a bit lit um the a bit lit bio is quite good
2: yeah i use but... that so yeah if anything's wrong with it you wrote it okay yeah <laughs> that's,
1: go on, what do we, we like to just shift the blame that's that yeah part. yeah <laughs> <I'm very laughs> fire aesthetic on this podcast <laughs> shifting blame shifting the blame
0: if you go down in the woods today you're sure of a big surprise if you go down in the woods today you'd better go in disguise for every bear that but there was we'll gather there for certain because
2: today's the day the teddy bears have their biennial conference.
1: Hello and welcome to All My Praxis. Today we're speaking with Dr. Andy Kesson, box office bear and reader in early modern studies at Roehampton University. Andy's work focuses on and in early modern theatre and is particularly invested in examining the sidelines of Shakespeare. He's currently the principal investigator on the AHRC before Shakespeare project, which researches the beginnings of the 16th century playhouses and tries to wrestle them from the hands of the, of the Elizabethans and into the mid-Tudor period. Speaking of wrestling, he's also working on a new... Speaking of wrestling, Alex wrote that bit. He's working on a new project entitled Box Office Bears, which examines the overlaps between animal baiting, gender and entertainment on the early modern stage. Thank you for coming.
0: Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. How was
2: that? How was that bio? Was it correct? Was
0: it- I liked it. I really liked the wrestling link. That was excellent. Particularly good.
2: Louise gave me a little side though. Alex wrote that. It was good. I worked on that, Louise. How dare
1: you?
2: <laughs> Sometimes we prep. <laughs> Sometimes we prep. <laughs> um, so
1: you actually have the honour of being one of the very few people that work earlier than eighteen hundred on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> which is um yeah we're, an area we know very little about yeah we're like we're very shit in the because i'm a victorianist and Alex is contemporary mm-hmm. <laughs> we really know nothing about so, you yeah, what does it
2: what does it mean to be early modern
0: um i'm spilling over with facts for you so it will be all right um yeah. What does it mean to be early modern? I don't know. It's not, it's not a great phrase. We don't really have any good phrases that describe the period. Like we get called the Renaissance, we get called the early modern, but historians think the early modern is kind of the 18th century really. And then literary literary literature people think the early modern is like a couple of days in the 16th century. <laughs> <laughs> Which so it's, days? It's, um, yeah. It's not the world's most best described period, I guess. Um, the, the it's kind of at the arse end of the medieval period, is where we're at, really, right? <laughs> so we're, we're sort of finishing being medieval, but not quite
1: okay. So, but how do you know? How does one know that you're finished being medieval? Like, I mean, do, when you, do you become modern? Yeah, do you stop living <laughs> or in castles? And, and I'm, 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 do you start bathing? And I'm, I'm just saying that because I know we've had um, a medieval on, on who was ranting about that. Um, <laughs> But like what
0: how do you know that you're not medieval anymore? Well you sort of don't, do you? It's we're, we're having a very complicated conversation about period now, aren't we? In periodization. Mm-hmm. But um it's I mean medieval podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: medieval... <laughs>
1: it's
0: already kind of a really terrible term, isn't it? Because medieval just means the stuff in the middle between other things and mm-hmm. I what I do sort of represents, like I say, the arse end of that period. Um but then what does it mean to be the end of the middle? Uh, yeah, I, I've got no idea when the 16th century happened. Um, I believe the 15th century preceded it and it was followed in an exciting sequel by the 17th century. But that's, <laughs> that's about yeah. as historical as I get. <laughs>
2: amazing. So, because with the work that you are doing, you are trying to kind of think, what. Well, from what I've read on your very uh, sparse bios uh, is, <laughs> is to an extent rethinking these kind of questions of periodization in terms of when we think of the 16th century, we kind of immediately align 16th century theater with Elizabethan periodizations and don't really attach them to the Tudor period and all that kind of stuff. So why why, is, why are periods important to you?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> all now laughing at that question. Um... Exactly. I'm not sure periods are important to me. Oh, Is that the most night. man statement of all time? <laughs> um, but I'm not sure if they um, they are. I mean, I think my starting point in my career was working in the theatre now. And um, I'm only really interested in these questions for what they do to how we think about it now. And we tend to think of the stuff that happens immediately before Shakespeare as being bad just because it happened to happen before Shakespeare. And that just seems like a weird way to think about stuff or things or time or anything else really um so in a way it's just about unpacking the weird prejudices we have about um about time in whatever whatever ways they might be but yeah it doesn't really bother me when or where something happened i just want to engage with the thing in its own Terms, I guess.
2: Yeah, as long as it's not Shakespeare, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare's a shitbag bag, so I tend to avoid him. But
2: uh, well, yes, apart
0: from that, um, yes. yeah, we we all need to be much less prejudiced, except about Shakespeare. That's fact, basically my
1: prejudice against <laughs> Shakespeare. There's the in something in the musical, which is about Oh my god! Every you know, do you know, you know the it. Yeah. There's yeah, a yeah, great yeah. a great song called "God I Hate Shakespeare," and I'm just like. <laughs> like, yes, I do.
2: <laughs> I think I, I think my favourite dissing of Shakespeare was a Blackadder episode, and they just punch him in the face. I can't remember what it was. So it was like, hello, my name is William Shakespeare. Just punches him directly in the face. It's incredible.
0: Yeah.
2: I think that
1: was the one where like he got him to see, there was there was a time travel episode, and yes. he got him to like sign his play, but he left the byro behind. So oh, nice. when it came back to the future, they didn't know Shakespeare as a playwright. He was the guy that invented the biro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering why he got this thing signed. Incredible, yes. Because yeah. he invented plastic, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Love
2: it. Um, okay. So if we want to avoid Shakespeare, who should we be looking at? Who is before Shakespeare?
0: Um, I can talk to you about individual people, but I guess I'm just excited about the theatre scene that mm-hmm. um Shakespeare gets to to join. Like it, it blows my mind that. Um, at some point in the 16th century, we go from zero playhouses, not just in London but probably on the planet, to suddenly having 10 in the space of 10 years, and it's that it's that paradigm shift and that cultural shift which really gets um, gets me excited. This is a culture where it's, it's illegal to discuss politics or religion in public. It's illegal to dream of the death of the monarch, and these spaces all pop up and go, "Hey, look at this king dying. Think about regime change here." <laughs> or what if there isn't a God? Or what if you fancy someone who seems to be of the same gender as you? Or what if you're not sure what your gender identity is? All of these worlds start popping up in a, in a culture which doesn't really have public entertainment in, this, in the way that we would understand it now. So it's, it's kind of that moment of inventing public entertainment which gets me really excited. And those earliest years have really not had much attention. And just to give you one example of what happens when you give them a bit of love, about 50% of those theatres have women at the top of their leadership structures. And they've just been completely written out of of history. And both the women and the men who build the theatres these are ordinary people. A lot of them are grocers. The very first person who builds a playhouse is a rhubarb salesman. That's one of my favorite facts it. of all time. Yeah, that ordinary-
1: thing, if you're like an extra or a chorus member in the theater and you're meant to like mind speaking and you're meant to say rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: Maybe it came from him. I don't know. That, that, like that's product placement, right?
1: <laughs> so me. <laughs> if, it, if
0: it had been Shakespeare, it would have been biro, biro, biro. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, so it's just, um, for me, it's, what's remarkable is this community of people um, producing shows regularly for, for strangers. That's really important. So theatre is, performance is happening long before the theatres come along. But performance is something you do with groups of people that you already know and that you exist in hierarchical relationships with. Um, this is a bit like social media, in a way, a bit like how Twitter might work. This is connecting you with strangers, 2,000 at a time, and asking you to think about things which you can't talk about. Um, anywhere else so it's that which I think is really exciting and I I can pick out some individuals like my rhubarb salesman but um, in a way what really interests me is the collective and London is a small city at this point and it looks like something like a quarter maybe even a half of Londoners are going to the theatre regularly by which I mean maybe once a week Mm. in order to keep these theatres going financially Um, So this is a group of people, you know, a city, which is essentially being radicalised at the level of politics, religion, sexuality, gender, social status. All those things are just being remixed and rethought in the playhouses in a way which you just don't have access to anywhere else in this culture.
1: I suppose this is probably a horrible question because it's probably one at the centre of your research and it's probably more complicated um, than I'm going to assume it is, but what, is that, like, what triggered this? Like, okay, so there was ideas about what you could so censorship and stuff, but was there a moment that like why? why then was, was, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of answers. But- I mean, give l- l- us
0: one. London <laughs> is a relatively small um, European capital city, but it's growing faster than any other. Mm -hmm. capital city it's on its way to becoming the biggest city in the world um it's also in a country which doesn't have big cities so this is very different to somewhere like spain where you've got lots of massive urban centers across the country and when spain um starts to build theaters you tend to get one or two theaters per city what's distinctive in london is that you have 10 10 theaters in this very small city so it's it's a small city which is growing so i think it's a response to that demographic shift and if you're growing that isn't just because Londoners are having sex, although probably they were, um, but what's really happening is loads of um, migration, both from other parts of England, but also from the British Isles, from Europe and beyond. So it's also a city of migration in a way which is very new. London is a port. Um, the river is um, really important to the city. Um, and the theatres, some of them really do just grow up along alongside the river. So that's where migration obviously is coming um, coming from. So that's a big part of it. I do think the English Channel plays a bigger part in English historiography than we often think. Like um, the English or the British often think of themselves as very successful in wars, but actually they've just got a really convenient geographical moat when it comes to the English Channel. And so- No, excuse
2: me, we're very <laughs> impressive. <laughs>
0: um, but you know, 16th century Europe um, is full of, um, full of war and you can watch theatre companies in Italy, for example, fold during sieges, during um, wars between Italian states. England doesn't really have any of that. So I think those are two kind of uh, socio-political reasons, I guess. And then we're also just looking at the beginning of experiments in capitalism, experiments in trade. And like I say, these are tradespeople who are building the theatres. They're not mm. bookish people. This is um,
2: if Ruben I... Selzman.
0: if I, Yeah, it's Rubab salesman. If I plonk mm. a massive building here, will I make money from it? That's the central question of a, of a theatre. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's responses to those things.
2: Nice. What's your other favorite? Okay, so if rhubarb founding is one is one <laughs> one of your favorite founders. What other kind of like, um, yeah, salesperson or yeah, I've lost my words. What is it? What other roots are there? <laughs> I'm interested. In,
1: I'm a, sorry, just a completely hijacked
2: question. question.
1: Please um, no, question. I'm just hijacking I'll it. it. I'll cut it. I'm I'm interested in the women though, it, I think <laughs> classic
2: Louise. Oh,
1: oh, <laughs> um, but yeah, but. That's really interesting to me that the the women were kind of behind the scenes. But in these early theaters, I think if you just have a smattering of knowledge about like the Globe, and you're like, oh well, if the women weren't on stage; it was all yeah, boys. Yeah. But so, but they were behind the scenes, or were they on stage in the early theaters? Like, what was what was the role there?
0: Uh, we know so little about the early theaters; it's actually really hard to know if women are on stage or not. It feels to me like a live question rather than something we know the answer to. But yeah, we tend to call this period. The all-male stage um so i'll answer both of your questions at the same time by pointing to some exciting women but let's start with mrs rhubarb so the wife of the rhubarb salesman so he he's john brain his wife margaret brain they um they go on to build one of the most famous theaters from the time because it's the theater that uh, shakespeare starts working in and it's it's called the theater unhelpfully capital t and this is a time when that word doesn't really exist in the english language it's a funny greek word meaning a place for watching like an observatory um, and John and Margaret Brain don't just finance the theatre, but when they run out of money for the project, they, they actually pick up the tools because they can't afford to hire carpenters anymore, and John and Margaret build the theatre with their own hands. Um, and about five years later, the Burbage family, who end up being Shakespeare's most immediate colleagues, um, James Burbage plays characters like Hamlet, um, the Burbage family basically oust uh, Mr and Mrs Rhubarb, uh, Mr and Mrs Brain, from... The theatre, we, we we actually see Margaret Brain being beaten off the premises by broomstick, by the burbages So not only do you see women leading this industry, but you see them being marginalised and being ousted from it in, in real time. Um, so that's uh, exciting woman number one. And there are loads of other exciting women, but the other one I'll point to is Anne Farrant, who um, uh, owns the Blackfriars Theatre, which is a, a tiny indoor theatre, um, hosting boy Boyd performers. And she's exciting for lots of reasons. We have some of her business letters. So we see her as a a female entrepreneur. But she also, um, the plays that she stages at the Blackfriars, that's the first surviving repertory of plays from Shakespeare's time. We have a suite of plays um, written and performed under her leadership. And um, they are fascinated by female identity to the point where some of the plays have almost no men in them whatsoever. Um, Almost all female casts um, and... uh, one play, Galatea, features two women who fall in love with each other. In the middle of the play, they have some form of sexual contact. Mm-hmm. They come back on stage and they go, out. was fantastic, let's get married. And at the end of the play, <laughs> the community gather around them and go off to their wedding. Um, and so you can see theatres which have women at the top of their leadership structures absolutely prioritising female fictional experience as well. And I think it's no accident that Shakespeare then comes along and changes that. And he's the one we now perform today in you know modern... Modern female performers are always looking for roles in Shakespeare. You don't have to do that with the early period because they're, they're full of great roles for women and lots of them.
1: I enjoy um, the being chased off with a broom because it's a <laughs> domestic instrument that you're like, get back in the kitchen, like literally, because it's a broom. So, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I also, I also um, love this kind of idea about um, Galatea and um, all that sort of gender fuckery. But I think um, that's something I want to ask you about a little bit later, um, because we have forgotten a very integral part of the podcast, <laughs> which is we like to curate a jingle for our guests. Methodology jingle, yes. The methodology jingle—it's never been called that before, but I think we should. I think we should have that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so the idea is it's name that tune, but there is a relationship to your research. And what is that? Mm-hmm. Alex, I did the intro. So can you do the
2: kazoo. I can do the kazoo. Um, it might go badly because my dog is sleeping at my feet, and she is notorious for not enjoying the kazoo. <laughs> she just has zero taste. Okay. <clears throat>
0: Who would have thought that would be the you outcome? I thought that would
2: wake her up. There you go. Good girl. Well okay. done. Thoughts? Um,
0: well, I mean, firstly, doesn't the kazoo make everything sound like Woody Woodpecker? Do you guys remember <laughs> that cartoon? Isn't that- yes. Yeah. Um, so that was the Bear Necessities. Yeah. And I think we could be about to talk about bears, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, yes. <laughs> so um, why bears? <laughs>
0: You guys would not believe how many fucking bears there were in Tudor, England. Uh, so we've, we've only just started the project and um, we we got a month and a half into the project and um, when we applied for funding, everybody said to us, you won't find any evidence of bears in early modern England, they weren't there. We found over n- n- almost 2,000 References to bears oh in early modern England—you couldn't move for a bear. Like you just—you walk down the street, disaster, straight into a bear. Um, <laughs> my favorite, my favorite fact so far is that bears regularly stop traffic in um, early modern England because people would stop their horses, stop their carts, they'd stop where, where they were walking, and just kind of, you know, stare at the bear. Um, <laughs> yeah, <it's> so, okay. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So um, bears are not an indigenous animal to England at this point. They don't seem to survive the Roman Empire. Um, uh, but um, bear baiting, which is this incredibly unpleasant, unethical, cruel practice of setting dogs onto a bear which has been um, fixed in place, trained in in place um, is a hugely popular sport in the period Um, and when the playhouses happen, we also see these purpose-built arenas being set up for, uh, for animal baiting So we're looking at that, we're working with an archaeologist who is a bear archaeologist, which is the best um, job title of all time, um, Hannah O'Regan. We're working with uh, Gregor Larson, who's an ancient DNA analyst, um, looking at the remains of the animals, um, interested in their gender, in their diet, where they may have come from, where they were sourced from, how they were looked after, because although this is a story of cruelty, it's also a story of care, because if you make money by hosting bear baiting, the last thing you want for the bear to die because you want to be able to make money from it the following day we've actually found a diary of a bear ward so that's a a guy who owned a bear and took it around the country and we can follow him on a day by day sometimes an hour by hour basis um and this these these poor bears are being asked to fight regularly so um we go back to wrestling really it's very much like professional wrestling if you want to make money from being um a great fighter you need to be able to make money the following day so we're looking at a level of staging and and performativity built into this practice and that's that's really what we're looking at We're looking at um baiting as a performance practice um and then bringing the archival um, knowledge that we have the 2000 bears we've already found uh and putting them into dialogue with the archaeology and with the the dna analysis as well
1: 2000 bears is a lot of bears have you ever had to exit somewhere being pursued by a bear
0: um, I thankfully have uh, never had to do that since um, since working on bears. Um, I have had my own uh, developing bearishness pointed out to me at alarming <laughs> levels. So who knows what could happen in the future <laughs> as I enter the bear community? Um, but um, for now, so I. So you are I the have...
2: pursuer now. That, that's. What <laughs>
0: yeah, that just sounds threatening and awful. Let's
2: not <laughs> <say that. laughs> Okay, so um, you mentioned actually that like that there are I don't know that gender plays an important position in, in bear and entertainment so what, what could you tell us a little bit more about that why does a bear's gender
0: yeah so it's still early days Um, for now um, there are a number of bear celebrities so some some bears get given names and mm-hmm. people go and flock to see them and they get gendered names they get male or female names they often get given names which route them to particular places so we get Ned of Canterbury for example so it's kind of like a football team right you go and cheer your local bear maybe Um, I think I think Two, two kind of ways in which people were watching baiting was political political and gendered so the the dog that's being set on the bear is a mastiff and that's a local it's an English bear and a, an English dog and it's a um, England was famous for its dogs again all the way back to the Roman period and specifically its mastiffs which are giant very aggressive dogs and this is before England gets associated with the bulldog it's associated with the mastiff mm. um, whereas the bear is seen as a presumably seen as a foreign animal so you're watching a kind of england versus non-england um battle taking place and then yeah the bears often get gendered female the dogs usually are gendered male and the dogs are often being brought um by local basically by local fuckwits um aristocrats male aristocrats who are you know demonstrating their masculine prowess by the fierceness and the size of their dogs so you are watching not just male animal versus female animal but but male animal owned by a high-status male mm-hmm. versus female. So there are all kinds of gendered stories to be seen here, and um, there are other forms of animal combat like cockfighting, which are um, seem to be all male. But uh, bear baiting, surprise, is surprise. So, yeah, um, get your cocks out for the boys, but get your bears out for the girls. And girls.
1: There <laughs> <laughs> we go. Amazing. Yeah, it's hard to sort of redirect my brain from sort of queer terminology when you're talking about there like it um yeah (laughs) like like, oh no no
0: refocus (laughs) Louise. but i mean it's a a good reminder that animals are often sexualized and we use Mm -hmm. the language of animals to talk about sexuality so as much as we're talking about gender there is a story about sexuality there as well i guess and i think the same is true of professional wrestling you know professional wrestling so often maps onto ways we think about heterosexuality homosexuality Mm -hmm um queerness straightness um so and
2: and those questions you're making there about um foreign identities as well like oh my god wwe is so so awful for that (laughs) absolutely Um, and hysterical it's basically just like a if anyone doesn't watch professional i basically our previous um office mate ollie um wrote one of his chapters on uh the entertainment of WWE and uh, character representation within mm. professional wrestling so we weirdly have a lot of wrestling knowledge um it's just it's just a soap opera it's it's amazing
1: Look for the bear necessities, the simple
2: biopolitics of life. I have a question that goes beyond the kind of the gender of the bear, which is why the bear? Like this seems to me like a kind of a bit of a megafauna, like charismatic megafauna approach, you know, how like pandas are really cute, so I'm gonna put them at the front of my research agenda. Um bears are really big and squishy, so it's gonna be really helpful to get funding for. Mm. Um <laughs> What is it if like what other animals are there on the early modern stage I and mean, what would, like, why is the bear perhaps like that we
1: associate with early modern drama? If they um, seem to be like fears and stuff, and we know that they're not indigenous to Britain, mm. why aren't you bringing things like, I don't know, wolves over or like, I don't know, lynx or something like that, that? You know, why the bear? It's
0: a really great question. Um, at the Tower of London for centuries, um, the monarch maintained uh, a menagerie of animals, a collection of animals. And King James I in particular, so um, the first Stuart King, um, uh, the first English Stuart King, that is, um, is particularly interested in getting his menagerie involved in baiting. So he's most excited about seeing lions being baited. But fascinatingly, lions do not give a fuck. They do not. They're not interested at all. So, you know, the whole point of baiting is it's an invasion of personal space, um, setting the dog on the bear. The bear is territorial. It reacts. The lion not remotely territorial, and it just thinks, "Well, you're over here. You want to fight? That's lovely. Have a nice time. I'm going to go over here." And the lion just literally sods off and goes somewhere else in the tower. <laughs> can't move. in the Tower of London. So um, it, it's partly about animal instincts, I, I think. Mm. Um, bears are also um, vaguely androgynous, if that's the right word. Sort of human, human-looking and um, human-like in some of their reactions, including their tenderness as well as their violence. Mm-hmm. So something going on there but yeah other animals are baited it's actually um uh illegal to slaughter a bull if you're a, a um a butcher unless it's being baited you have to bait it to death in order to be able to sell its meat wow. so you do see other animals being baited but of course a bull is indigenous so mm-hmm. um presumably exciting to watch if you like that sort of thing but not exotic in the way um that a bear is so yeah you do see other animals both on the early modern stage and elsewhere but bears Bears seem to be where it's at.
2: <laughs> so is it a similar sort of audience then that is then going to these sort of forms of live entertainment that then... Because do these, do, does, does the baiting kind of predate the kind of establishment of the playhouses? And is there some sort of overlap between that kind of... Yeah, the are the same people who are watching a bear baiting then going to go and watch Galatier? Like
0: Yeah, yeah. Um... We don't, we don't really have specifics, but that seems to be what's happening And the animal-baiting arenas and the theatres are literally next to each other. Mm. And I would have thought you couldn't go to the theatre without, certainly the theatres next to the arena, you wouldn't be able to go there without hearing the animals and mm. without probably without seeing the kennels, the ponds where the animals are washing and drinking, probably seeing some of the animals as well. So it's almost like a, a theatre in a zoo in mm. a way, it's perhaps the best way to think about it. So yeah, the two, the two places are happening on top of each other um, and going back to Louise's question earlier about exiting pursued by a bear, we don't we don't know if there's a real bear on stage for that or not. But it's you are if you're Shakespeare writing that stage direction, you are right next to a community of bears if you want to bring the bear on stage. You know,
2: nice if Ned's got you know a bit some bit of time on his social calendar, just back him on stage. <laughs>
0: Come and pursue me.
2: Come and pursue me, Ned. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of being pursued by bears, we don't actually have your academic Tinder bio. Um, <laughs> would you like to give it to us? Uh, this is what we ask instead of the official bio that we've given at the very beginning. It's a way to get through the kind of, um, I don't know, academic bullshit that we all deal with at conferences. So if you were to try and seduce us at a conference with your research, what would you tell us?
0: Um, just a minute while I bring it up because I forgot to have it open. Um well, I mean, the first thing I said um, is that I've never seen a Tinder bio before. So I'm a bit worried that this won't look like a Tinder bio, but also um, I worry that everyone says that when you ask them to produce a, t- a Tinder bio. So, um, yeah. Um, well, I work on bears, uh, the animal, not the gay man genre. Um, as I've already said, uh, this research I'm doing at the moment does seem to be um, fixing me even more closely to the, the gay man genre than I may have been in already. Um, working as a bear archaeologist, uh, which is a real job, by the way, and an ancient DNA analyst to tell the history of bears in early modern England. Um, I work on people who were not William Shakespeare. Statistically, there were more people who were not William Shakespeare than people who were. So I'm quite interested <laughs> in it's, it's true, I'm quite interested in them. I'm also interested in, in kind of challenging what a ridiculous name William Shakespeare is, like Willie, in the Elizabethan period meant exactly the same thing that it means now. The sonnets are full of unsolicited dick, dick, jokes. Jokes.
2: So dick um, jokes.
0: Shakespeare's constantly talking about his Willy, and then Shakespeare as well, like kind of um, spear wanker. Mm-hmm. It's a very phallic name. Well, um,
1: sorry, but could you, do you know any of the Shakespeare dick jokes or stuff at the top of your head? Because I've heard for a while. About the pen,
2: the, like, he's always talking about his fucking pen in I the sonnets. The pen, in the verse.
0: Yeah, um, I don't know any off the top of my head. I'm some frantic Googling to see if I can get any. Whoever have her wish, thou mm. hast thy will, yeah. and will to boot, and will in overplus. And then I think he asks if he can um, hide his will in the person uh, that he's talking to. Um, In order to make by large will more, in order to give you an even bigger willy. Um, So, yeah, uh, they (laughs) are are everywhere. We we
1: didn't study at A level. (laughs) (laughs) It Um... was a bit of a more chaste selection that we got. Um... Yeah,
0: no, penis is everywhere. If you remember Will and Grace, like when that show first started, (laughs) there was all this narrative around Will and Grace that basically it was a heterosexual sitcom which was sort of pretending it had a gay man in it and yeah. um, lots of questions about whether they'd get together and she would cure him of his queerness. But it's God. there in the names. Like, Grace nice. is is early modern for both vagina and then just for female sexuality in general. So mm. the, it's called Penis and Vagina. It's called Male and Female Sexuality. It's absolutely there in the naming um, of the characters. And um, they the people who named that show clearly had just read a lot of Shakespeare's sonnets. Yeah,
2: amazing. Like, I really want... I never thought that I would have um an actual academic link between Will and Grace and
1: Shakespeare's sonnets, but this is this is this is why we have this podcast. There I mean go. this I is I mean, maybe it's maybe it's too old for Gen Z, but when you teach poetry and poetics this year, Alex. I just feel like, right guys. Will and Grace, I'll be like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's the great tragedy of teaching, isn't it? Is that all of your very funky anecdotes in my case from the nineteen eighties? for some reason don't make sense to uh, 20 year olds i don't yeah. know why that is not
2: even like 80, like i tried to make a buffy reference earlier this year no idea philistines absolute philistines. philistines and they walk around wearing 90s clothing <laughs> fucking, you know you know nothing you know nothing take the choker off and watch some fucking buffy the vampire slayer then get back to me gen z <laughs> your
1: hey. well, listeners
0: can't see this but i'm wearing a snoopy jumper okay. and no, I, saw, I saw my nephews this weekend and they asked me who that was <gasps> oh tragic
1: uneducated
2: obviously (laughs) they're just like oh if it was pepper pig they'd be down for it or what's it clifford the big red dog fuck off clifford
1: have (laughs) you seen the the pictures of clifford like in the movie like they've done a live action and clifford is like cgi top it's the stuff of nightmares (laughs) it's the stuff of nightmares uh, just when you have time google it it's this huge animatronic like well, no cgi thing terrifying it's like um <laughs> what was that big flying dog in the never-ending story it's kind of got that vibe Yeah, oh, that was well, terrifying as well. it looks it's like a kind up, of flying yeah. dog thing it did look like a flying dog oh shit what is his
2: name never-ending story uh, never-ending story the big flying,
1: flying dog,
2: dog. dragon dragon <laughs> dog thing falcor Falcor. That was it. Falcor. Fuck yeah, Falcor. Okay. Again, people, <laughs> I'll talk about Falcor and poetry, poetics. So i am like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's been one week since I hoped this email found you well. Okay. Um,. <laughs> We actually would like a boring fact though, because we've because we've had your Tinder bio, which actually I think is the one of the long, the longer bios we've had for Tinder bios. I think oh. that would go over the the line length that the, the app allows, but we'll allow it because we're all we'll there. allow it. Yeah. I've always
0: had problems with word count. I do apologise. <laughs>
2: um, but I also like the point about the statistical, um, you know, elements of there being more people who weren't Shakespeare than Shakespeare. That was actually very. I enjoyed, I enjoyed I'm a shocker. That, that was the true shock. Um, but we'd like a boring fact about yourself
0: about me or about my research
2: no no about you a boring fact about you
0: i mean i'm still i am still wearing a snoopy jumper and i do have a lobster to my uh yeah that's not your lobster
2: you made that very very clear this morning
0: (laughs) (laughs) I i didn't claim ownership of it i'm just saying i have a lobster i have in the sense that there is a lobster um it's free it doesn't belong to me it's a free lobster it's at liberty but um yeah is that will that do
1: yeah, I mean that sure. was that was pretty boring. But the, the 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 joy of boring fact is, you know, if you have to think about it, then it's not boring. And that was just yeah. like literally looking around the room. So <laughs> well played. Well, I we also liked it was quite misdirecting.
2: It's sort of like ah, a boring fact about myself. Let me tell you what I'm wearing, and that there is an object next to me. And because sometimes people are just sort of like, actually, yeah, boring fact is um. You know, my parents left me when I was a child, and you you just get like a lot of an insight into their lives um, through their boring fact. Often, it's a humble brag. Yeah, often humble brag. So this was actually a very good boring fact. You're still a mystery, Andy. (laughs) 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 That's how I like things to be. (laughs) Um, But one thing we do know about you is that you are a reader. Um, So, how many books does it have? How many books does it take for someone to be professionally recognised as a reader?
0: I think statistically, like one, right to be a, to be an actual reader. Um, yeah, you read one works. book. I have. I don't tell anyone that, but I have. Yeah, um, I don't like to boast about these things. Um, I will say that getting promoted to reader basically R.I.P. Your time to do any reading at all. So it's it's not, <laughs> not actually that descriptive a job title. Well,
1: maybe it's because you completed all the books. Yeah, you yeah, finished all the, the books.
0: So. Finished all the books. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm desperately waiting for someone to write another one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: What was the one book that you read? And um, if you say Shakespeare's Folio, uh, you know. You're right.
0: Oh, no, I haven't read that. I haven't read any. It. Um I'm panicking kind of looking around now. I'm a I'm about to read Catherine Fox's new book. She's one of my favourite novelists, so I'm just gonna give her a shout out. Oh, nice. uh, Tales from Linford. Totally didn't answer your question, did it? But yeah.
2: Yeah, but um, you're, you're like a politician. <laughs> <laughs> Just sidestepping our really hard questions and interrogations. Tell us about the PPE scandal, Andy. Okay, no. <laughs> um, okay, cool. The uncanny.
1: I really enjoy that you're not a fan of Shakespeare because I fucking hate Shakespeare. Uh, because I went to school in Stratford-upon-Avon. Oh, wow. I fucking hate Shakespeare. (laughs) Why is Shakespeare so fucking overrated?
0: Um, I mean, one one interesting thing about how that happens is it's kind of an 18th century thing. So you guys might know more about what's happening around it than me, but um, it coincides with the British Empire. It coincides with the, um, the idea that the novel has arrived, although it hasn't really. It's always been around, but the idea that... The novel, particularly as a male art form, uh, has arrived, coincides with the canonization of, of Shakespeare. And he kind of gets celebrated, firstly, as the great dad, the great literary father of English literature. And he gets celebrated as um, someone who epitomizes Englishness. Um, and he does do things in his writing which really speak to the 18th century, like the taming of a shrew and its idea that women don't really belong in the public sphere that doesn't make any sense in the 16th century, you know, going back to my point that some of Shakespeare's bosses may well have been female. Mm -hmm. um, But actually that's a deeply aspirational idea in the 18th century in lots of ways for patriarchy um, and that sort of play. And then the history plays in which, you know, Richard II, John of Gaunt says that England is an isle. Um, England is an island, that really super brexit idea. Mm -hmm. You know, England is not an island. Please buy another map because Mm -hmm. it is lying to you. Um, The idea of England as this self-contained self-sufficient nation states alongside the idea of where men and women belong with respect to each other hugely attractive in the 18th century and um a really good way good good in a bad way a really useful way for the british empire to then tell stories and justify itself to the various people um, who are the, the hard end of that empire so it's a product of empire it's a product of um something that's happening 200 years after Shakespeare is around. I think Um, I never tire of telling people that Shakespeare's first appearance in print isn't one of his plays and it isn't one of his poems. It's someone giving him a really shit review. um, And he's accused basically of being a misogynist. um, There's a single line from one of his first plays, which is, oh, tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide, tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide, which is a full on verbal assault of a woman for daring to be out in public. Um, which is really what Shakespeare's earliest work is about. And that first appearance in print suggests to us that Shakespeare was seen as a misogynist even by his, um, by his contemporaries. And when he starts writing, there are more plays about women than there are about men. There are more plays titled after female characters than male characters. Shakespeare writes 40 plays. He never once names a play after a female character. He's, he, he turns against that. Um, and even a brilliant character like Lady Macbeth it's only really allowed to be brilliant for the first half of the play, yeah, and then halfway she just through, off. She just she just buggers off, and halfway through she asks her husband what he's going to do next, and he says, um, "Be innocent of the knowledge, dearest Chuck," and that's basically early modern for "I'm not going to tell you, but you're a really lovely chicken," um, <laughs> and then we never see we never see her again. I'm not going to tell born. you,
1: even though you've kind of orchestrated this to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it's time for me to take over. Yeah,
0: absolutely. We don't, we don't see her again except when she's sleepwalking, so you know she doesn't even know she's on stage, and she dies off stage. And I think that tells us quite a lot about Shakespeare's not just gender politics, but politics. Mm. And sadly, that's a big part, I think, of why he's come to be so celebrated. He's a great writer, um, but he wasn't even thought of as being the best writer in his own time. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's a product of the 18th and 19th century. It's a product of empire, and it's really unfortunate, not least for its political and its gender implications
1: so was he generally more conservative and right-wing than his contemporaries in a really uh, sweeping statement
0: <laughs> <laughs> i mean obviously so i mean neither, neither of those terms exist in the period so it's, it's not mm-hmm. easy to map them on straightforwardly um but he does seem to have been a bit of a hierarchy ar- arse kisser um he's someone who was thought of as being a safe pair of hands when it comes to writing a riot scene there's a play called sir thomas moore which Mm-hmm. Looks like it was. They were repeatedly trying to stage it, and they couldn't get it on stage. And they they seem to have brought Shakespeare in to rewrite the riot scene, so it would, it would be safe. Um,
2: Is that the he strange Stranger's so, speech?
0: Yeah, the Stranger's speech. Exactly. Um, he writes so many um, plays, not just about England and history, but about kings called Henry. Like he's got a weird Henry fetish. Oh, he like a third of his plays are called King Henry. But they're all
2: so dull. <laughs> I feel like I had to read Ooh. one of the Henrys, and I can't remember it. Is it, is it one of the Henrys that has Falstaff in it though, or is that a different one? That's two of them. That's, that's two of them. Mm, that, yeah. Falstaff's the only good thing about that because he just keeps getting drunk and pretending to be dead, and then getting up and being like, lol I'm back!" And they're like, "Oh, Falstaff, you silly oh, boy. boy! Oh, I thought oh. you were dead on the field, but you were just drunk again! Yay!" <laughs> that was a direct
0: quotation from the play. That was, that was a
2: direct quotation. Yeah. <laughs> lads, lads, lads. Lions, tigers. Praxis! <laughs> oh my. Um, so could you tell us then a bit about, so there there are different, obviously there's a lot of other plays that are happening in this period. How did Dolphin Backs get involved with um, with this? Uh, what's the function of Dolphins?
0: Um, well, Dolphins Back is the name of a theatre company I, I work with. Um, that phrase, I'm sorry to tell you, does come from a Shakespeare play. It comes oh, from Twelfth Night. Um, and uh, Dolphins Back is run by James Wallace, an amazing um, director who has staged lots and lots of non-Shakespearean plays um, there are about 400 plays surviving from Shakespeare's time and I think James has directed half of them, which is quite extraordinary. I suspect no one on the planet knows, you know, not since the 17th century has anyone known that the plays from that period as well, I suspect. Um, we've worked with them to stage uh, lots of plays, um, Woman in the Moon being um, the most exciting one. It's by um, John Lilly um, and has the longest role for, for a woman in in the surviving repertory. Um, this woman is built on stage by a female god. Um, So the play begins at the beginning of creation and she makes a woman on stage with her two female sidekicks who are hilariously called Concord and Discord. Um, And the woman is built, um, brought to life on stage and then just kicks the shit out of everything around her. She beats up all of the male members of the cast. She also has sex with them. Um, And it's an incredibly sex-positive play. She sleeps with um, a series of men and at no point does anyone go... You shouldn't Slightly. be doing that. <laughs> um, it's a really wonderful place. We What's that. it called again? The Moon. The Woman in the Moon.
2: The Woman in the Moon. This is, a, yeah. this is amazing. Why the fuck did I have to read Henry IV or whatever? Really? <laughs> this exactly. Is outri- I'm, I'm yeah. literally outraged. I'm so angry. Like, So I did my undergrad at Warwick and we had to do an entire fucking final year module on Shakespeare. And it was so boring and it was so repetitive. And all the women were either dead or mad. I want to read this. This sounds incredible. Please tell me more about women kicking the shit out of men on stage.
0: What's particularly um, extraordinary about your experience at Warwick is that that course was set up by GK Hunter in the 1960s when Warwick first opened. (laughs) Um, And Hunter was the foremost John Lilly scholar of the 20th century. Um, But he thought that you should end your Warwick degree by focusing on Shakespeare, not not ever meeting um, Lilly. So, yeah, crazy. Um, There is so much sex positivity in Lilly. There are so many central female roles Women often outnumber men, um, just in terms of numbers, um, have these huge roles. And yeah, just a lot of sex. It's fantastic.
1: How did Lily create Woman? I'm just pulling off one of your article titles. <laughs> uh,
0: well, the play I was talking about, "Woman in the Moon, like I a Woman is literally created on stage. So I don't know if you're asking me about that, Louise, um, or just about Lily in general.
1: Just about Lily in general. And I how, want both. Like, and I actually
2: th- want yeah can you tell us a little bit more about the staging first because I'm actually really interested in this idea because just just my understanding of early modern theater is that it's really into props and mm. um spectacle and I'm, I'm thinking here of like pageants and and um, yeah. uh, what's the word masks that kind of thing um as precursors to early modern stage drama yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah so is there like a really extravagant creation of woman
0: yeah we don't know too much about the actual act of being created but um the god, the god so again if you think about it, he's writing for a christian world mm. and he's giving us um a female god who is called nature so very kind of strongly rooted in, in ovid um she just literally opens up her shop like a workshop oh, for a second, and like the a stage vagina. direction says um, oh no, no no vagina sorry her, shop, um, mm,
2: her grace opens her <laughs> grace
0: well workshop yes exactly who knows what that could mean um <laughs> the stage direction says but the shop contains um images of some clad and some unclad. So some have got clothing on, some are butt naked, hooray. Um, And they bring forth, disappointingly, they bring forth the clothed image. (laughs) Um, And then Concord and Discord do all kinds of kinky things with her um, to bring her um, to life. And then we just get the stage direction, which says the image walketh up and down fearfully. Um, So asked to walk up and down. And then fearfully could either mean... You know, she's terrified, or it could mean that she's walking up and down in a terrifying way. Mm-hmm. She's filling us full of fear. Mm-hmm. It's quite hard to read. See, and that then finally. A signature walk.
1: No, I can't say it. Signature walk, i.e., America's Next Top Model. It's yes. <laughs> <My> signature walk, <laughs> and it's going to make me famous. Can <laughs> <I
0: do>? <laughs> <laughs> and then the final thing she does when she's being created it says the image um, plays the vixen with everything about her. Isn't Ooh. that a great stage direction? Plays the vixen with everything about her. She literally tears the set down, tears people to shreds. She goes ballistic. It's fantastic. Uh, <laughs>
2: this is That's you know you know how everyone's like, oh, you know what? But Shakespeare did write strong women, hashtag Cleopatra. Fuck her, fuck that. This is great. This is my new Cleopatra. <laughs> I want this. This is excellent. Walking about like a vixen. Who can say? Whether-
1: Double blind peer review. Could you tell us more about um, the sexy ladies in Galatea? Like, what? Like so, you know, what's going on there? These are more exciting women. Are there just exciting women throughout John Lilly's work?
0: Um. Yeah, his work is full of really interesting um, female characters. Um, yeah, the two girls in, in Galatea, I'm hesitating to call them sexy ladies because um, <laughs> it's quite hard to know how old they are, but they could be... You know, a bit like with Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet could be 12. Yes. They could be really quite young. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, they're two, two young mm-hmm. girls. Um, they get sent off into the woods on their own, dressed as boys. Um, at least one of them is very interested in this. And but not just these two characters, but quite a few characters in the play end up questioning their gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, they start, they meet, they start flirting. They start flirting hilariously badly. And then one of them just says let us into the grove and make much of one another. And I recommend that to you as a chat-up line because it never fails. Um, it's sort of quoting that Madonna song, isn't it? Into the Groove. Mm. Let us into the grove and make much of one yeah. another. Yeah. And then they come back on stage and they're like, that was fantastic, let's get married. That's uh, <laughs> extraordinary. And, you know, normally in early modern plays, the marriage happens at the end and maybe sex will happen afterwards, mm. after the play. But they have some form of sexual contact in the middle of the play. Um, and then they want to get married, which in itself, again, um, is an unusually sex-positive way to think about sex. Normally it would be like, oh my god, you're a girl, I'm a girl, this is a terrible thing, goodbye, goodbye. Um, but no, it's much more hello, hello.
1: Yeah, because I was just thinking, I mean, the obvious example that is Twelfth Night, that people use, mm. this sort of gay panic um, that happens there, and it's okay, it's okay yes. though, because she's got a twin who's a boy and we can just make it all heteronormative in the spine, but so Kind of Twelfth Night yeah. is not your best example of early modern gender querying. So can, can you talk yeah. more about the sort of trans narratives of Lily's work? Yeah, well,
0: Shakespeare never recovers from Galatea. Like, Galatea is on stage just before Shakespeare starts writing and um, as you say, Louise, Twelfth Night is a great example but As You Like It, and in fact, almost every one of his comedies responds to Galatea in some ways and gives us that gay panic. So both Twelfth Night and As You Like It end with a sense of disgust that this might be someone of the, same, um, of the same sex. There's absolutely none of that in Galatea. And just as there's a, a female God in Women in the Moon, Galatea as well ends with Venus coming on stage, goddess of love. You couldn't ask for a better spokesperson on this topic. And the community turned to her and they say, how like you this? What do you make of this gay marriage? And she says, I like well and allow it, which is how all people coming out of a closet should be spoken to. Um, <laughs> The play turns on gender in so many different ways. There are lots of different terms for how you would describe a boy, how you would describe a girl. There's lots of conversation in, in the play about what it means to wear certain kinds of clothing, what it does to your body, to your gesture, to your posture, and to your understanding of your gendered um, self. There isn't really one specific thing it says about trans identity, but what it, what it does do is completely prevents you from thinking about gender in a binary way. Uh, it heads off any possibility of thinking about gender Um, as binary so it's deeply trans um, in that sense and um, a brilliant scholar called Joey Gamble has recently shown that the word trans is all over at the early modern period Um, the word transmasculine the word transfeminate they're all live in this period Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's not anachronistic not that it would have been anyway but just at a basic linguistic level these -hmm. issues are are alive in the period. And this isn't really a period which thinks about gender as binary. It thinks of it as liquid, mm-hmm. plastic, malleable, changeable. It's fascinated by the idea of boys who become girls and girls who become boys.
2: It's just one of the things like I feel like it's again, maybe the the product so much of uh, a particular imaginary of Shakespeare that it's such a kind of it's it's always wanged out with like heteronormative narratives like Romeo and Juliet, all that kind of stuff. And I find it kind yeah. of interesting then that there's a lot of sort of um you know speaking back to um Shakespeare which tries to I don't know re-queer or which which is which is kind of interesting now because it's it's a it's applying a particular idea of queer that was that we have now versus what was then so mm-hmm. it, can you tell us maybe a little bit more because you've done some a lot of staging or restaging of texts as part of your work so how do you kind of handle that um yeah, the application of different sort of like contemporary ideas and, and theories of queerness or gender versus what does it mean in that particular period and, and what how can we kind of mash those together for a contemporary performance? This is not a very easy question at all. Um, I haven't had a coffee. Um. <laughs> well, I mean, it's
0: striking to the heart of some of the work that I'm doing, so I'm, I'm really grateful for that question. Um, yeah, I mean, at the moment, we're living in a period where lots of theatres are trying to rescue and remedy mm. Shakespeare's gender yeah. and sexuality politics by queering. And what's always been great about Galatea is we can just play its queerness rather mm. than queering it as a play. Nice. Um, and when we performed it, we I'm, I'm workshopping it and staging it next year with a group of queer, trans and disabled performers. And they're also predominantly performers who haven't done a lot of classical theatre, um, partly because they have amazing careers and other parts of, of um, kinds of performance, but also because classical theatre training often isn't available to people mm. who are already marginalised by society um, and quite often when we perform the play we get complaints and people say why have you modernised the English mm. why have you modernised the play and we always say well we haven't <laughs> <laughs> the, the play just feels very contemporary, very immediate but it also gives people a history who are constantly being told that they are recent mm-hmm. dread, you know even yes. worse, fashionable mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and. Yeah. And what's glorious about the play as well is, you know, at a time where queerness and transness are often set against each other. Mm -hmm. This is a play which is so excitedly queer and trans Mm -hmm. um, and open to both of those identities and existences and stories and ways of being. Um, So it's a it's a really wonderfully life affirming play. And again, a lot of theatre in the queer and trans and disabled community, often because of budgetary reasons, tends to be small scale and tends to be, quite rightly, tends to unpack um, the negativity of being marginalised. But this is a play which has a full community celebrating queerness mm. and transness, mm. and also chastity and virginity and asexuality. Mm. Um, so it's, it's on so many different ways, it's um, on so many different levels. It's really, I think, exciting in terms of what it's doing for contemporary theatre, mm-hmm. as well as for our sense of the theatre of Shakespeare's time.
1: Yeah, so basically we need to stop trying to queer Shakespeare and just get rid of him entirely. And uh, yeah, just focus on other. It's
2: an edited collection or is it a monograph of Shakespeare. Yeah. The, the one that i is coming to mind for that. Just burn yeah. it. I mean, I'm no, that sounds horrible. I don't know. I don't know that researcher. I'm sure his works really good. <laughs> that sounded terrible. Like burn that book. But I like the idea of sort of, um, not having to, what was the word you use? Re- re- I mean, yeah, not, not recover, but, um,
0: like remedy or remedy, rescue? yeah, rescue. There's
2: something kind of interesting there in terms of like there's no need for rescue. It's just about applying a different methodology and lens to what was already there, yeah. um, which I think is really, I mean, it's also very much against what, I don't know, the contemporary culture wars, right, in terms of the early modern period was bad. It was not, quote unquote, woke enough. And therefore to wokeify it, we now need to fire everyone. What? Um, so yeah, I think that's really important to recognize that actually contemporary ideas of race and gender and sexuality were far more... Fluid and changeable in those periods than they even are today. Maybe we just platformed the wrong person. Yeah, maybe we just need to fucking get rid of Shakespeare. He's the worst. For Lily. So, is there anyone else that you would suggest is a kind of an, an interesting? I don't want to call them sideliners, but um, maybe you have a, a, a hashtag for them instead, okay. uh, <laughs> or outliers, or sort of non-Shakespeares. Um, so, Lily is one that's come to the fore. Is there any other ones that you think are really um, interesting to kind of foreground?
0: I mean, although I've always loved to talk about Lily, because I think he's great. I kind of want to go back to what I said right at the start about how I think it's for community, which is really exciting rather than mm. individual writers. And so mm-hmm. many plays in my period get written by collaborative teams of writers anyway. Um, I really love a play called The Chase Made in Cheapside, which I sort of feel is this podcast, is right up this podcast um, street. So <laughs> for anyone who remembers the TV show, the really terrible TV show, Wife Swap from the late 90s <laughs> yes. and 2000s, oh, yes. Chase Made in Cheapside is basically Husband Swap. Um, women swap their husbands because um, their penises are either not um, working fun- functionally or not satisfying enough. And they, they swap and they compare penis and semen notes. They talk at great length about who's got the best almond milk. Yes, they really do. Um, and um, are really interested in who's potent, who's impotent. Um, it's the most extraordinary play. It has a scene in it halfway through um, where a woman has given birth and she's having a, um, a christening scene for her baby. She's in bed with her baby. And she's surrounded by about 20 women. So again, this idea that this is an all-male stage. So those, those are women being played by boys, just to be clear. But nevertheless, you know, unlike Shakespeare, who tends to operate a very strict two-women-per-play, thank-you-very-much-and-no-more policy, this play is absolutely full of female identity. Um, and in celebration of the form of heterosexuality, which we don't get to see very often, which is just women getting cocky, talking about cocks for (laughs) three hours and it's the most hilarious, (laughs) fantastic play. I'm a huge fan of that one.
1: Yeah, but of course as a period it was very conservative and actually these sorts of conversations didn't happen. Of course. Um, I think think one of the things that annoys me the most about Shakespeare is (laughs) that it's fucking everywhere. Like, that you just can't fucking do I mean, I'm so excited for Boris Johnson's book, don't get me wrong. It's really <laughs> wonderful. Um, but um, it's, uh, I don't know, if, have you been to Stratford upon Avon?
0: Yeah, I, yes, I have. <laughs>
1: for your there's, um, there's a lot of Shakespeare. You can't fucking move for Shakespeare. Um, when I was growing up, this is just me going off on a tangent because I want to rant about how terrible this was. Um, the nightclub. Which I don't know, because you were at work, I think it was already shut down by the time the nightclub in Stratford upon Avon. Because so it was a tourist trap during the day. It was called Shakespeareans. Shakespeareans. Yep. Shakespeareans. <laughs> and because it was a tourist trap during the day, it was like a replica of the Globe Theatre and people would go see it and there'd be like a sort of show with like animatronics and shit. And then when it became a nightclub, it was literally like, a shit replica of the Globe Theatre that you were downing WKDs in because you know I was a youth. And um, yeah. And this I is just that. if you're doing a Jager bomb in the globe it would be great. Yes, it's just, <laughs> it <was> just <laughs> everywhere. Neighborhood watch in Stratford is called Bard Watch. Like, what the fuck? Sorry, my parents love that. Um, it's, it's okay. the worst.
0: I'm I'm from Canterbury and it's exactly the same oh, there. Absolutely. Like Canterbury's where Marlowe and Lily are from, but they celebrate Shakespeare, so they have the Full Staff Hotel. Well, you could have like, you know, Christopher Marlowe, you could have the Scourge of God tea room. I would Mm -hmm. go and have a a, a tea scone in there, but Mm -hmm. instead you get, yeah, Shakespeare themed -themed stuff. It's important to remember though, like I said, Shakespeare only got celebrated in this way in the 18th century. And even then, only particular bits of his writing and the the sonnets, for example, have only really been popular in the last 100 years. Mm -hmm. So people often act like this is A situation which can never be changed, but I reckon we can get rid of Shakespeare if we try really, really hard.
2: (laughs) I'm trying so hard. I'm having to revamp our um, introductory course, which is like the first year course on poetry and poetics, and the first week is traditionally on the sonnet. And I want to. I'm trying to do like I'm. I'm I'm trying to set some Branfield instead because he writes a series of sonnets to a man uh, before Shakespeare does, or or whatever around the same time. Yeah. Um,
0: which is like, yes. and again,
2: because I also, oh, sorry, not Branfield, Barnfield, Branfield, yes. Barnfield, yeah, I'm not a 17th century person, um, but this isn't, I just find it interesting, like even the dominance of all these kind of questions about, oh, how do we make early modern theatre contemporary or relevant? it's always going back to Shakespeare in terms of post-colonial approaches to Shakespeare, queer approaches to Shakespeare, ecological approaches to Shakespeare. Like there's fucking other things out there than Shakespeare. So I don't know if you have any good sonnets that you think I should go for instead of Shakespeare, I'd be keen mm. to know. Cause I don't mm. know the period very well.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I'm not really a poetry person. I have, oh, no I have to think about that, but I mean, just in terms of making the period relevant, this is, a period inventing public entertainment at a time of plague and lockdown mm-hmm. and social distancing. How much more fucking relevant can anything be? You um, <laughs> questions about who belongs in theatre, who gets to be on stage, who gets to be backstage, who gets to be in the audience at a time when most people did not have access to these sorts of stories, mm-hmm. these sorts of ways of juggling ideas. So I don't really know how much more relevant you can be. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. I think it's we'll... Uh... relevant to talk about, you know, the Crown Prince of Denmark and having a hissy fit.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: fucking hamlet hate hamlet so much shut the fuck up hamlet um (laughs) my students
0: once asked me um what hamlet's name means and i told them it means little pig which was meant to be a joke but they didn't realize that so i got an entire classroom of students wrote essays about hamlet as a little pig (laughs)
1: Um, well
0: my fault i had to mark them
1: them.
2: (laughs) incredible Um, Okay, so we normally end by asking if there's anything that you would like to plug. So here is your chance to talk about a bit lit or anything else that you have coming up or any other projects or websites and things that we can then uh, spam our listeners with.
0: Ah, well, we're just about to launch the Box Office Bears website, which is boxofficebears.com, which is going to launch with a little animation about a bear on the loose in Nantwich in 1586 during a massive fire. What was the name Um, of the bear? Oh, I don't think we've got a name for the bear, but the pe- people in that which have to rush out onto the street and choose whether to run towards the bear or towards the fire, which is not a life, <laughs> that's not a life decision I'd ever want to have to make. I love this. Um, Can you
2: make a public um, um, thing about what to name the bear and then everyone could just be like Barry McBearface?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. Well, because the abbreviation of our project is Bob, we have called our project Bear Bob. That's quite that's hard awesome. to say somehow. Nice. Bob the Bear. Um, but yes a bit lit which the website for which is a bitlit.co co um is uh, a little bit a bit like yourselves getting people to talk about um not just their research but also their practice because we talked to creative practitioners as well it was set up in response to to um to, to lockdown um and uh yeah i was just surrounded by colleagues in universities but also in theatre saying why does what we do matter at a time of medical emergency and i felt like i wanted a space to say why this stuff matters. Um, We've made about 150 films now. We've covered topics from Ghostbusters through to lots of films on professional wrestling. um, (laughs) And it's just a really fun space to hang out. So yeah, if anyone of your listeners want to join us, we're always happy to talk to people. Um, And we're always happy to be commissioned for content as well. But yeah, a bitlook.co. To pursue
2: more bears, you can check out Andy's research at boxofficebears.com. Follow his project, A Bit Lit, at A underscore bit underscore lit. Find out about more non-Shakespearean early modern authors by following at B, the letter, for, the number, shakes, or one word, before shakes. Or for more excellent bear content, why not just give them a follow, at Andy Kesson. We've been long my praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five-star output deserves five-star reviews. No reviewer 2 comments, please.
1: Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing lawmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at lawmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter S for sod off Shakespeare. And the number 1623. Our shape this week is The Woman and the Moon. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye.